As you know, Kilconomics kicks off next Thursday evening and we are honoured and delighted to have one of the finest minds in German economics, Professor Gunter Grun. He is on the line from Dortmund. Gunter, how are you? Also, wie geht's, David? Sie verstehen nicht die Unterschiede zwischen einem Schlange und einem Autoschlange und so weiter. So it's just a joy to be on the podcast at last. My apologies, I've refused so many times. And tell me, what are you going to be doing at Kilconomics? What are you going to be sharing? So three shows that you really don't know what you get, the way it's organised. You're really thrown in at the deep end. So one for me that I'm really looking forward to is Rory Sutherland. We'll be talking about how to get ahead in advertising. As you know, he's the vice chairman of Ogilvy. This man is like the masked magician of advertising. He takes the mask off and shows you what these advertisers are really doing to get into your little pixie heads and to change the way you think and buy the shit you don't need. So I'm very excited about that because I'm a big fan. I've seen his shows before. I'm also hosting Led by Donkeys. So this is how your Irish government are outsourcing pretty much every decision they make to other minds who are higher paid than them because they pay your taxes to them to do their jobs. So that's wonderful. So they will be clever people discussing how the Irish economy could eloquently distillate if you don't morph a nuclear exchange of proglitism, causing myricidial convulsions, not just locally, but also in the ever-expanding pan-European epigynously palmated diffusion brackets. So now somebody will say something like that, and my job is to go, Really? And then get them to say it again in English. So that's the crack. <laughs> that's the crack. And does, apart from Kilconomics, what else are you up to, Gunter? Outside of Kilconomics, well, I'm doing the usual thing. I'm, I'm with Avery Talent. So if you need a conference host or you're doing a seminar, Christmas parties, uh, bar mitzvahs, whatever it is, but mainly corporate work. So if, if you need to do a roast of your boss over the company to go through slides, presentations, that's what I do at averytalent.com. And available all through the Christmas season. And I don't do any kips, only like the Shelburne or the, or the fancy hotels, Croke Park, none of your kips. But um, I'm thinking more for the new year, David. In January, you have how we get Ireland going again. And you need the likes of me to host your function. Gunter, we will see you next Thursday. Looking forward to it. Tschüss for heute. Danke sehr. Tschüss for heute. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is again time for the podcast and we are continuing our series on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, trying to give you the economic and political, maybe demographic history of how we got to where we are now looking at the foundation of the state of Israel, looking about the Nakba, looking about geopolitics, looking about who else was involved, looking about 
at various different eras. This era, John, were from 1993 to, to now. Yes. 1993 to now. Yeah. Actually, before we start, did you ever see that programme, Fauda? I did. I did. Because that, that is kind of dealing with this era that we're going to talk about. It is very much dealing with this era, what we're talking about. But it was a fantastic programme about the kind of Israeli... Secret Service, isn't Secret it? Secret Service, yeah. again, battling uh, Hamas. But it, I just thought it was really brilliant. And it was an Israeli-made programme, but it gave you a really good insight into kind of day-to-day stuff. Well, I'm telling yeah. you, if, if Doran was knocking around, who was the hero of Fauda, <laughs> there would have been no Hamas incursion. <laughs> he would have been in the boxing club <laughs> in was, Gaza. Smoking cigarettes. Smoking cigarettes. <laughs> Although, I mean, I must admit, again... For somebody who's lived there, there was very much the case that the Israeli characters were complex, multidimensional. They were worried about their family. A lot of the Arab characters were very unidimensional. Do you remember? Did you see that? Like they were like they were like either terrorists or not terrorists, or you know, fundamentalists or not fundamentalists. Whereas the Israelis were much more subtle characters. So I think, you know, yes, it was very good, but again, it underpins. And something we're going to talk about all the time is that constant othering of the Arabs in Israel. Yeah, this idea that the other. The dangerous, yeah. the weird, the strange, as if Palestinians don't have the same aspirations for their kids as everybody else. Sure, yeah. Well, there's always... But it's a great series. By the way, yeah. if, you, if you haven't seen it, I think it's probably on Netflix. Is it, Fada? Uh, I, 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 probably, Google yeah, it. Yeah. It's, 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 it's well worth it. But no, it's a, it is a good series. It is a good series. But that, you know, that idea of othering populations, whether it's the Arabs or whoever, you know, that's the kind of media view. And it's how the media decide on a on a narrative and then yeah. run with that. No, absolutely, know. absolutely. And I suppose the thing is that all productions, whether they're fact or fiction, television or news media, have implicit in them an agenda. It's yeah. always very interesting because yeah. the writers or whoever, and that's the, it's a very, very difficult thing to disentangle. So you watch something like a drama like Fauda and you think, wow, this is really well made. The characters mm. are very complex. The issues are very complex. But the underlying message is one crowd are slightly heroic yeah. and the other crowd are slightly... Absolutely. Like cowboy, cowboys, cowboys and, and Indians. Indians. Yeah. Cowboys and Indians. Yeah. But let us start. It's interesting to start with Fauda because Fauda is based on Israelis in the West Bank as undercover cops and soldiers. Mm. When I first went to Israel, what intrigued me was the way in which the Israelis created a situation where you could live in Tel Aviv and you could live in this global metropolis and never, ever, ever, if you didn't want to see it, be aware of Gaza or be aware of the West Bank. And this is a very interesting way in which they've set the country up. And I remember my first visit there deciding to go to Bethlehem mm-hmm. from Jerusalem. So I'd been in Tel Aviv and I'd been in Haifa and I'd been all these parts. On the donkey. On the donkey, exactly, exactly. Watching the star, exactly, <laughs> saying, have you got a bed for the night? <laughs> saying, no, no, sorry, no bed for the night. And then trying to explain. Imagine Mary trying to, you know, Mary trying to explain to Joseph, it's not yours, it's God's. Exactly. I was out in the boozer last night <laughs> and now it's God's. But anyway, old Jerusalem is an amazing city, well worth visiting. Love to go, for, I've never For a been. variety of reasons. Mm. There's a thing called Jerusalem Syndrome, where you can actually become really obsessed with it. And for me, the most interesting part of it was a place called Ethiopia Road, which is neither Jewish nor Muslim, mm. neither Israeli nor Palestinian, but is actually the home of the Ethiopian Copts that you spoke about. Yeah, they have yeah. a beautiful, beautiful old church. And 
You know, it's, it's fascinating to see. So you've got Armenians, cops, all sorts of people living in this crazy, crazy city with, the, you know, the Alaska Mosque and the Wailing Wall and all these things. But in order to get to Bethlehem, you have to cross the Green Line. So you have to cross the 1967 borders and you go from a place called Damascus Gate, right? So it's Damascus yeah. Gate, the old city. Now you, you talk about Jesus, it is biblical, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And at They're Damas- all so familiar, yeah. even though I've never been there. Exactly. So yeah. at the Damascus Gate which is one of the many gates in the old city, you get a bus, an Eged bus. Eged was the Israeli buses or a Palestinian bus. Mm. And you cross from Israeli Jerusalem into the West Bank. And even then, which was 25 years ago, it's like going from the first world to the second or maybe third world. That's the first thing. Yeah, yeah. The second thing is that I really noticed, right? So I'm sitting in the back of a bus full of Palestinian grannies in the main. Palestinian people, loads of them, right? Mm. And this was in a period when you could actually drive amazingly from Gaza to Ramallah with no checkpoints. Okay. Very, very few. Yeah. But you will meet Israeli checkpoints. I want to say no checkpoints, no walls, right? Mm. So the soldiers got on and the way the Israeli soldiers behave towards the Palestinian grannies, and I'm sitting on the bus and they look at me and they clock me as a Westerner Mm. straight away. And so they treat me in a totally different way. Where's your passport? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy was from Manchester, the soldier, right? Oh, so right. it was like, I was going to talk to Man City and Oasis about him, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I was going to say, what's Gallagher? <laughs> right? But I mean, so he was a proper mank with a proper mank accent. Yeah. And the way his platoon, he was the, I wouldn't say sergeant, maybe he was the corporal or whatever. But the way that platoon behaved towards the Palestinians, the aggression, the raised voices, the move, get your out. And speaking, of course, in Hebrew, yeah. not in Arabic. Right where the common language was actually broken English, if they had actually tried to have a common language. Yeah, yeah. And then you realised, you know, this is occupation. Occupation is humiliation. It's small-scale aggressions. It's violence. But it doesn't have to be absolute violence. It's just the perception of, here's an army, Mm. which is tooled up with massive guns, and here are Palestinian grannies. And one side is occupied and the other side is the occupier. And that was before all, this was during the beginning mm. of the peace. So this is even when the peace was being established. Okay, There so, was a nastiness in the air, a nastiness. Let me ask you then, because, you know, we're starting in... So this is 93, right? yeah. four around then. Okay, so, and this is the time of the Oslo Accords. Yes. And the Oslo Accord was a time for optimism. Yeah. That they've reached this two-state solution and peace was in the air yeah. and, yeah, and yeah, away yeah, they yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. But that's not how it okay. panned out. Why didn't okay. the Oslo Accord work? So this is a fantastic question, right? So the Oslo Accord is between the PLO, yeah. who were the sworn implacable enemies of Israel, headed by Yasser Arafat, who was their number one terrorist, okay? Mm. And initially the Likud party, which was under a guy called Yitzhak Shamir, yeah, little small guy, mm. right? And then under a guy called Rabin, Yitzhak Rabin, who yeah. was a a very famous general. And his right-hand man was a guy called Shimon Perez. Yeah. And they made peace with the Palestinians. They redrew the boundaries. The PLO said, yes, we accept this. The PLO renounced their idea that Israel didn't have a right to exist. I mean, these are huge things in the context, right? And there was this enormous sense of optimism. This is why I ended up living there, okay, and working there and and, and studying the economy there, etc., and it was not just the economy there, it was the economy of the whole, the whole region. But, and I think here is quite instructive, John. So this is 1994, let's say to 2000, let's yeah. say this period, yeah, right? Yeah. 
What is very instructive here is what happened in Northern Ireland. And I'm not saying the parallels are in any way absolutely similar, but there's an echo, there's a rhyme, right? If you look at what happened in Northern Ireland, the middle ground made peace, the Ulster Unionist Party and the SDLP. Yeah. Right? The original objective was that this peace would then freeze out the extremes, Sinn Féin and the DUP. And Sinn Féin and the DUP would have to come into the centre, right? Mm. But the idea was that John Hume and Seamus Mallon and David Trimble, those people, they would be representing the people. The objective in Israel was that Rabin, Perez, Arafat would represent their people and they'd bring the middle ground. What happened in Northern Ireland, as we saw, is that the middle ground we got destroyed by the extremes on both sides saying, you've given too much away. Mm, mm. Exactly the same thing happened in Israel with slightly different circumstances. Yeah, but the yeah. end game was, if you look at the politics of the region, right, there's three big subheadings. It's within the Israelis, it's the politics between the Labour Party and the Likud Party. Yeah. So the left-wing party and the right-wing party, the more peaceful party and the less peaceful party, right? And just to interject there, the, the, the Likud party is Netanyahu's party is now. Is Netanyahu's party. And yeah. Netanyahu inherited that party from Yitzhak Shamir, yeah. who inherited from Menachem Begin. And all of those guys, Shamir and Begin, were the guys who actually set off the bombs that actually caused the Brits to leave Palestine. So they are basically, to take the, the Sinn Féin analogy, right? Yeah. The Likud party are essentially the party that were terrorists, yeah. right? And they have now become the dominant right-wing party, right? right. Of okay. which Netanyahu is the... Mary Lou. Well, I wouldn't say... Well, Net Netanyahu, the interesting about Netanyahu, Netanyahu's career is... Mary Lou Netanyahu. <laughs> oh no, that's, that's going to be... But the interesting thing about Netanyahu is Netanyahu's career was supposed to have been his brother Johnny Netanyahu, Johnny, right. who was shot at the raid of Entebbe, and Tebi oh, was in yes. Uganda. Yeah. And he was one of the Israeli paratroopers and he was good looking and he was this, that and the other. And he was shot in the head coming out of the Israeli plane when they had all those okay. hostages. So right. there's, there's a whole kind of heroic backstory for Netanyahu that you'd have to, if you lived in Israel, you'd know all this. Yeah, yeah, carrier, yeah, right? yeah. But so you got the fight between Labour and Likud and the Israeli side. On the Palestinian side, this period is the fight between Hamas and the PLO or Fatah. Fatah are the party of the PLO, right? And again, Hamas emerge much stronger. Mm. Like a way the DUP emerged much stronger. Yeah. So the DUP emerged much, much stronger. The OUP, who actually signed the peace and took risks for peace, the official Unionist Party get destroyed in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And of course, then the other big political pieces. So you've got the Israelis, you've got the Palestinians, and then you've got what I would call the fight between Allah and Marx. And that is... What we see in this period is the emergence of fundamental religious parties, Hamas, Hezbollah, financed by Iran, etc. Yeah. right? Yeah. Whereas in the past, we had secular parties, the PLO, all about having Marxist states in the region. And so what we have is this, and not just Marxists, but the idea is you have God versus secularism, you have Likud versus Labour, you have Hamas versus PLO. These are all the fights that mm. are going on. Mm. And of course, what happens then is I'm living there and the very first reaction to the peace was this overwhelming, euphoric idea that people can live together. And people were talking about the two states living side by side, mm. Palestinians and Israelis going to school with each other, their children, their grandchildren. I mean, I spoke to Israelis talking about their grandchildren will be, you know, Palestinian and the Palestinians will be Israelis and and then Hamas, who are a minority party, 
and a minority movement begin with suicide bombs. So yeah. Hamas see the peace in the very same way as the DUP saw the peace in the north, right? And to a degree Sinn Féin as well. Mm-hmm. They said, this isn't enough. Let's go for all out. So mm-hmm. once the PLO recognize Israel, Hamas say, we will never recognize Israel. We want Palestine from the river to the sea, from the Jordan River to the sea, yeah. without any Jews, right? And they start setting off suicide bombs in buses, these Eged buses. And Eged mm-hmm. is like the CIE of mm-hmm. Israel. And yeah. this is the bus I used to get to work all, all the time. And then they start going off 93, 94, 95, all around this period. And this completely hardens Israeli opinion against the peace. Because what the Israelis say, look, we've made peace. And what do we get? We get suicide bombs. Mm. So this is beginning what I would call the incarceration of the Palestinians. So when I was there first, you could travel quite freely all around the West Bank, right? Yeah. So the Israelis say, look, if we can't stop these suicide bombs, we need to stop Palestinians coming into Israel. Yeah. And if we can't stop Palestinians coming into Israel because they all work here, what we've got to do is we've got to put up a wall around them. We've got to put up this fence, yeah. this security fence. There's, there's, there's a very strong logic there. There's but, a very strong logic there, but what it does is it incarcerates yeah. the Palestinians, number one, in, in, in Gaza. And number two, it creates this ridiculous patchwork in the West Bank where you've got so many of these fences and walls that Palestinians can't travel around. You know, it's, it's mm. very hard to travel around the West Bank now from one area to the other because yeah. you've got to avoid these settlers. The other side of this, of course, John, is the settler population. The settler population goes from about 100,000 at the time of the peace to about 400,000 now. Yeah. So Israel becomes, as a result of the suicide bombs, I would say, much, much more right-wing, much, much more yeah. security-conscious, much more likely to vote for the guy who says, I'm going to go in hard. You know, as I said at the very beginning of part one, you know, for every action, there is a reaction. Sometimes it's equal and sometimes it's disproportionate, but there's on both sides. On both sides, exactly. exactly. So the Israeli side hardens Mm. as a result of suicide bombs. Who wants that? Hamas. This is exactly what Hamas have been, basically the tail that has been wagging the Israeli dog for the last 20 years. Because Hamas said, we don't want the peace. The peace of Arafat is absolutely pro-Israeli. It copper bottoms the 1967 settlement. It copper bottoms the 1948 settlement. We don't want it. So what you see is they are now running the show. And every suicide bomb changes the dynamic, right? And once the dynamic changes, the average Palestinian then is saying to Fatah and the PLO you had this peace. You were supposed to deliver prosperity and peace mm. and we will go forward with the Israelis. And we find ourselves behind a bloody fence. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, So you yeah. can see how the dynamic changes up completely, right? This is all happening all the way through the late 90s. Shimon Peres, the great peacemaker, his party, the Labour Party, is destroyed by the suicide bombs and then the second intifada. Mm. But the major thing that happens in this period is, of course, 9-11. Well, of course, that didn't just change the Middle East, that changed the whole world. Exactly. Yeah. So let's explore that a bit more and let's see what that did to Israel and the Palestinian relationship, but also to the kind of West relationship with the Arab world and further afield and Afghanistan and, and Iraq, etc. And of course, the economy. Yeah. After this. 
and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, Mark, so 9-11 changes everything. Yeah. So remember I was saying that Hamas emerges in the early 90s and is basically dictating policy, even yeah. though it's a minority, minority party. So again, when I look at, sometimes I look at the Shinners in the North, right? The Shinners were the minority party. They decide we're going to double down on unification. We are going to say the Good Friday Agreement is okay, but you know what? We're we going towards a border pole. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're constantly, constantly, constantly making sure that the population are moving towards more nationalism rather than less, less nationalism, whereas the Belfast Agreement was all about less nationalism, yeah. and less unionism. Yeah. But what we've ended up is more unionism and more nationalism yeah. in the North, right? Yeah. Similar thing in uh, the Israeli context. 9-11 happens. And just one thing I'm just going to say before 9-11, one of the problems with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as I see it, is the involvement of foreign powers. So ever since 1948, the Israelis on the one hand and the Palestinians on the other were always incredibly keen to co-opt foreign powers into their deals, right? Yeah. So basically, what is in effect a land issue between Jews and Muslims and Christians has become a geopolitical issue between the whole world. Yeah. And the reason I believe this is, is that the Israelis were always keen to involve first the French and then the Americans in their deliberations mm -hmm. on yeah. their side. And then once the Americans got involved, the Arabs and the Palestinians and then the greater Arab community got the Russians involved and everybody else involved, right? So although some people would say it's great to have foreigners involved and big powers, this, this idea of the adults in the room, yeah. I think the involvement of the superpowers has made the problem much, much more intractable because it has actually involved people who don't have skin in the game do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. When you have skin in the game, like one of the most interesting things, we know it's a little side, side thing, but people forget how amazing the European Union as an idea is. That Germany and France, who actually hated each other and had all reason to hate each other, got together and did a deal together and buried the hatchet. And they did bury the hatchet. Yeah. Well, that never happened in the Middle East. That never happened in the Middle East. Always when there appeared to be a solution, that solution tended typically to be imposed from outside. 
So what I've always thought is there's been an infantilization of local politics. Mm. And as a result of that, it's a bit like being in a playground, you know, he hit me, sir. Yeah. He hit me, missus. He well, hit it's, me. It's that, it's that old joke of, I, I'm willing to bury the hatchet if you just keep your head still. <laughs> exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I think, so that, that's one thing to say. So then 9-11 happens, right? Mm. And again, 9-11, Hamas is an extreme Islamic organization. Let's not get anything wrong. I mean, this is not an organization that is anything other. This is an Islamic organization which believes in an Islamic state mm. in Israel, yep. right? Yep. We talked about the Mujahideen. We talked about Afghanistan, training ground for Al-Qaeda, right? So Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan orchestrate this attack on the United States. Mm. This completely changed the background, mainly because it pits the Americans against the Islamic world, which is exactly what Al-Qaeda wanted. In the same way as Hamas want this sort of, what I would describe as, a sort of an existential crisis between the Christian world and the Muslim world. The, the holy war, the jihad, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, the Americans blunder into Iraq on totally false evidence. Mm. They destroy the country. They destroy the Saddam Hussein infrastructure. They then, of course, destroy Syria in the process. They allow ISIS to emerge. ISIS are funded by Saudi Arabia. So there's mm. lots of stuff yeah, going yeah, on. In the background. Yeah. But all this takes attention away from the Palestinians. This is my point, right? And the Israelis use this deflection of attention as an opportunity to try and turn Israel into Florida. So they're right. trying to take, yeah, they yeah. try to pretend as if we're in the sun, everything's fine, we've got the sea, we've got startups, we've got, you know, cosmopolitan, we've got gay pride, yada, 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 right? Yeah. So it's like, it's like Florida with two reservations stuck onto it. Yes. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is the Israeli tactic. They see this. Now, this ends up in the situation where you have, in the area called Israel and Palestine, you have a flourishing flamboyant democracy called Israel with a military dictatorship called the Occupied Territories, yeah. which is run by the Israeli military. And the Israelis are trying constantly to justify that in their heads. Mm -hmm. But with the invasion of Iraq comes something bizarre, which is... Everybody thought that the Americans would invade Iraq and become more powerful in the Middle East. The Americans invaded Iraq and became less powerful. Yes, right? absolutely. They ceded yeah. power. And of course, the people who won power were America's implacable enemies, Iran. Mm. So Iran emerges as the most dominant player after the Americans go into Iraq with the explicit idea of subjugating Islamic fundamentalism. And what they end up doing is allowing Iran to emerge as the kingmaker. And why they do this is because there's a huge amount of Shia Muslims in mm. Iraq who Saddam, who's a Sunni Muslim, oppressed. Yeah. There's Shia Muslims in Syria. There are Shia Muslims in Lebanon. And of course, there's Shia Muslims in Iran. And there's an arc, a Shia arc, now from Tehran all the way to Sidon in Lebanon. Yeah. The Americans also, maybe it's a lesson for big powers, is the threat of your power is much more dangerous and much more worrying than your actual power. Because what the Iraqis proved is the American army wasn't great. Yeah. It wasn't great. It was like you have all this military and in Fallujah and Mosul and all these places, you're kind of beaten. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that changes the whole world. And America, interestingly, under then Obama and Trump, kind of leaves the region, kind of disappears. Mm. And who comes in? 
Putin back in Assad in Syria and Putin and the Russian standoff for Syria. So the Russians, the Americans, invade Iraq, seed the ground, pull out of Iraq. There's a vacuum. Into that vacuum comes ISIS. And then the big power in the region is Russia comes in. This is all in the you know, 2010s, 2015s. Yeah, but, but also the other player as well was the other kind of adult, small adult in the room, but quite significant was Turkey. Yes, and the Turks, interestingly. So the Turks are in a very strange position, right? So there's three dominant races in the mm. area. Four, let's say races. There are Turks, there are Persians, there are Arabs, and there are Jews. And the Turks and the Persians, the Turks and the Iranians don't like each other. And that's going back thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, to the Sasanian fucking empires and also the, all that good stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. But they don't like each other. The right? Lydians and the those Lydians. Things. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is going back all oh, this is going back a long, long way, right? <laughs> and Ataturk, Kamal Ataturk, yeah. did not like the Iranians at all, the Persians. They're the historical enemy. Mm. There's the Arabs who emerge, and the Arabs, the Turks and the Iranians don't take the Arabs too seriously. They regard them as kind of Johnny-come-latelys, and if they hadn't got oil, they wouldn't really be a player right. at all because yeah, of a yeah. small population. But they are the other big power base. So the Turks are always negotiating Islam on the one hand, but also Turkish ethnicity on the other. And But they are the major military power in the area. Yes. So the Turkish military is yeah. the major. Turkey is the biggest power in NATO, ex the United States. Yeah. It's the only one the Russians are afraid of as well. And you'll notice that in the Ukrainian war. Turks will give the Russians a slap any day. Yeah. Right, and the Russians are afraid of them. Well, it's the fact that they're they're NATO member that complicates everything in many complicates ways. Complicates everything. So that's the sort of geopolitics going on. Yeah. But then if we look at economics, economics has been a phenomenon. So the Israelis are trying to create Florida with two reservations, right? Mm, yeah. Gaza and the West Bank, okay? Yeah. And pretend that basically Tel Aviv is the Miami Beach of the Middle East. Yeah, yeah. And they've done that quite successfully. But those of us, and I remember because I went to the... You love this. The Republic of Ireland played Israel in 2005. The biggest non-Jewish tourist event ever was 9,000 paddies going over to see the Republic in, in Tel Aviv. I went with Gary Coyle, my artist friend. So it, was, it, was, it, was, it was great. It was one all. We scored in the first minute. They scored in the last minute. Yeah. And the guy who scored with them was an Arab. And this is an interesting thing. Ah, okay. So in Israel, there are three gradients of Arab people. On the top is the Arabs who are Arabs who live in Israel. There's yeah. like two million of them. 20% of the population. Then there are the Arabs in the West Bank, and mm. then there are the Arabs in Gaza. And basically, the Arabs in Gaza are treated the worst, the Arabs in the West Bank slightly better, and the Arabs in Israel slightly better again. And this is why the Israelis always say, we're not an apartheid state, there's Arabs in our parliament. But it mm. is an apartheid state, you can feel it. There's no doubt of that, right? right but right. there is a significant... Palestinian population, too many. But actually, just talk to me generally about the de demographics of the area, because it, it's incredibly, more so than anywhere else in the world, it's incredibly dynamic because people are flooding in and... Flooding out and flooding out. Yeah, yeah. Also, right, you're, this is a critical, critical issue to understand is that in the area, mm. the whole area of Palestine, which was Palestine, there are 14.3 million people. Right. 7.2 million Jews and 7.1 million Arabs. Okay. So it's nearly 50-50. Yeah. And the Arabs are having a lot of children. And the other Israelis who are having a lot of children are the Haradis, the Orthodox Jews. Right. And these people don't even go to the army. Right. A lot of them don't even accept that Israel is a state. This really? Is the, yeah, there's a massive area of Haradi Jews, very Orthodox Jews, 
who believe that Israel can only exist metaphysically when the Messiah comes. He hasn't come, so there can't be a Jewish state. Okay, it's, this is all right, mad okay. stuff, right? Didn't it's, know that one now. So, so those okay. lads, the, the, the ringlet you get, the, the fellas, the, yeah. the Israelis call the penguins, right? Those fellas... The Israelis call yeah, them that. Right. Okay. And those fellas, and most Israelis don't particularly like them because they don't fight in the army. Yeah. So the Israelis say, we're sending our sons to fight in order for you guys to read the Torah and take tax dollars from us. Yeah. And so there's all sorts of things. But yeah. the big thing is, so Israelis are obsessed with demography and they are obsessed with them outbreeding the Arabs. But as we know in Gaza, for example, half the population are under 15 or under 20 or something like this. Mm. West Bank, quite similar. So that is really the issue, that the Israelis are obsessed by making Israel permanently a Jewish majority. In order to do that, they actually need to have a deal with the West Bank and Gaza. They need to recognize them as states, really, because that's the only way in which they can actually have a Jewish majority within Israel proper, right? And this is all the time when you're there, this is always the conversation. You know, mm. There's 7 million. The Arabs, on the other hand, have the same feeling because there's 7 million Arabs in the region. Mm. Now, of course, the Israelis will say, look, this is our country, this is our state. But you can see 10 years, 20, 30 years down the road, what's going to happen. Yeah. Which is that the only Jews who are having kids are heavily religious Jews. And so... Israel will become a Jewish state, but a non-secular Jewish state. Yeah. To become a religious state. So you're talking about, it's this going back to the extremes on both sides. Exactly, exactly. And, and this period from kind of 9-11, and it's not just in the Middle East, it, it seems to be like in America, and we see it in Europe in our, with our European tour, the extremists, extremists. on both sides are, are becoming more more powerful and more and more prominent more, in more politics. Prominent. But again, extremism only becomes fertile if the economy is not equal, if yeah. people don't have opportunity. I mean, going back to the 11th century under Sharia law is not an option for most people unless yeah. you paint a picture of the present, which is so diabolical that people say, oh, fuck it, right? Yeah. And that is what has happened. So this is the economics part, right? Mm. Israel in this period has gone from what I would say Becca Valley to Silicon Valley. Yeah. So Becca Valley is the Becca Valley is this huge part of Lebanon that the Israelis occupied. When we talk about the Israeli occupation of Lebanon, the Israelis occupied and got bogged down there. Yeah. The entire economy society has moved from obsessing about the Becca Valley to obsessing about Silicon Valley. So Israel has become the startup nation, mm. right? And this is the total change in the economy of Israel. So remember we started, we said the economy of Israel was largely a socialist, trade union dominated economy up until the late 1980s. Mm. In the late 1980s, early 1990s, the Israelis started to change and they became an economy based on high tech. Now, a fascinating story is the following, John. When I was living there, in and out, at this stage I wasn't living there, but I was commuting back and forth from London to Tel Aviv. Intel were about to make two massive investments outside of America. Yeah. The two biggest investments they've ever made. One was in Kildare, and the other one was going to be in Israel. And I followed both sides. I used to read the papers, even though I was living in London, read the mm. Irish papers, and I'd read the Israeli papers. And the 
attitude of the Israelis and the attitude of the Irish government was completely, utterly different, right? How so? So the Irish government did everything possible to get intel in here. Yeah. The Israeli government was split. Half of them didn't want them intel. So you think, okay, that's really weird, isn't it? Yeah. Because the Israeli approach to high-tech, both Ireland and Israel are the most successful high-tech economies in the world in terms of exporting Mm. of product. Two totally different models. The Irish model has been entirely based on multinational investment. So we will take in American capital. We will fuse it with our technology, our talent, our labor. We'll produce products and we'll export them. Yeah. And we will tax it very, very modestly and we will generate tax increases to such a degree that probably now the multinationals, the high-tech multinationals generate about 5,000 euros tax revenue for every man, woman, and child in this country, which is the highest in the world by a country mile. Right. Right. The Israelis could have gone down this route, but they said, no, we don't want American companies. We want American money. We will fuse it with our talent. We create our own companies. Right. Right. So they decided to go down the startup culture. So where Ireland had the IDA, the IDA was about attracting in American companies and saying, Come and be here. The Israelis looked at the IDA model and they said no. They set up a thing called Yosma. And Yosma was a startup VC company. So what they said to the Americans is, you give us your money. Mm. We will give you ownership of these Israeli companies that we will be seeding here. We will then list those companies on the NASDAQ and that's how you would benefit. So so the Israelis are capitalizing on the new influx of Russia, the Russians right. that we spoke about in the last the episode. Thing. So the Russians arrive in, a million of them, yeah. over a million of them. They're engineers, they're physicists, they're doctors, they're industrially well-trained. We forget that the Soviet Union was very, very good at training engineers. I mean, mm. these are the people who put men into space, right? Yeah. They could do it. They built their own arms industry. A lot of the industrial engineers, the doctors and physicists were Jewish. So they all immigrate to Israel. Either them or their kids become the talent base for the Israeli high-tech industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They then have the military. The military, which is a very high-tech military, is training these kids and giving them, in effect, internships in technology companies, right? Because the army is a technological army. Yeah. So those kids come out of the army they're engineers, they're scientists, they're mathematicians, they're code breakers and therefore code makers. Yeah. So there's a huge, huge conveyor belt of technological, scientific intelligence in Israel, mm. right? They then say, we don't want to give all this to the Americans as sort of well-paid wage slaves. Yeah. Why don't we set up our own companies? So this is a totally different attitude to the one we have. Now, both of them have been successful in their own way, but the Israeli one's different. I'll give you some statistics, right? Israel is the highest density of startup companies anywhere in the world. There's 4,000 startups at the moment in Israel. That's one for every 1,800 Israelis. More Israeli companies are listed on the NASDAQ than the entire of European Union companies. Wow. So there's more Israeli high-tech companies than there are in the whole of Europe. Venture capital in Israel was 2.5 times greater than that in the United States per head of population and 30 times greater than Europe. VC money. Jeez, right? okay. 80 times greater than China and 350 times greater than India. This is in the last decade, right? Mm. The 
Israelis attracted in about 2011. So this, these are old figures, but this yeah. gives you a sense, right? Two billion of American venture capital money, right? That's as much money as flowed in. So this is with 9 million people. Mm. That's as much money as flowed into the United Kingdom with 61 million people. Or that's as much money as flowed into France and Germany with 145 million, right? right. Wow. So what you can wow. see is that the Israelis, their share of global venture capital to seed these companies has gone through the roof. And this, of course, is this Israeli high-tech miracle. Yeah. And it contrasts with Ireland because they decided to build their own companies and own their own equity in a way. Because they would say, it's much better to own your own companies than to work for somebody else. Mm. That has created this high-tech, enormous high-tech industry. Yeah. And as you say, it's a function of demography, a function of immigration, a function of the military, also a function of the fact that the United States for Israelis is their best friend. So American capital is very happy to go to Israel and Israelis are very happy to go and live in the United States. Mm. So what you have is this sort of, almost got a, a kind of a tech superhighway between Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv and the area around Tel Aviv. And that has created this new economy. But now all the while, John, the Palestinians are lingering behind these gates and walls cut off from the world. Yeah. But they're aware of what's going on. And all the while, the Israelis, particularly Netanyahu, I don't think you can underestimate how malignant an influence Benjamin Netanyahu has been on Israel and mm. how he's operated. I mean, he's like, he's like a mafia boss, you know. He's, yeah. he's indicted. He's, has he, was he convicted of corruption? No, because he got back into being prime minister and the sitting prime minister can't be, right, can't okay. be convicted. So, but can't that's waiting court. for him but when he gets... waiting for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has, he's elevated these settlers and, and he's, he's basically poisoned the well as far as I can see. Okay. And I was, you know, and I've been following this for a long time. Yeah. There's no more malignant a person. I think the Israelis have been so badly served by him, right? Yeah. But that doesn't absolve them because the Israelis were happy to go along with the Florida plus reservations idea. They really were, yeah. right? They were happy to go along with the idea that everything's fine. The Netanyahu policy was because of what's going on in the rest of the world, everyone's forgotten about the Palestinians. So we'll just keep them there. Mm. And we'll treat them as if they are, you know, these townships in South Africa. And we'll keep them behind the yeah. gates, right? And this, of course, is what Hamas has destroyed. The myth that Israel can exist without doing a deal with the Palestinians. Mm. So just to recap, John, you've had the destruction of the center in Israel. You've had the demographic, what the Israelis call time bomb, which is the fact that an actual fact, there's 7 million and 7 million in effect yeah. in the area. Yeah. So somebody's got to do a deal. The Americans have been outflanked, outmaneuvered since Iraq. They are no longer the dominant player. Mm. But that idea of calling in your big brother every time, I think, has prolonged the conflict because you're basically calling people who don't have skin in the game, who aren't actually involved. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's much better to sit down with each other and say, guys, we've got to sort this thing out if we can. And then, of course, finally, you have this high-tech thing. So what the Israelis have tried to do, and arguably quite successfully up until the last couple of weeks, right, is create this idea that they live in Florida surrounded by reservations and hope the world forgets about the reservations, Gaza and yeah. the West Bank. Netanyahu is this very malignant creature in the middle of it. But that doesn't absolve the Israelis themselves who've gone along with what are in effect the policies of an apartheid state. There's no doubt. Yeah. Because you cannot have people who live in one country 
and who live under your jurisdiction and under your constitutional laws and under your army, not having a vote in Israel proper, not having the same rights, etc. Mm. But as I said, there's three gradients of Arabs. Yeah. So that's where we are, John. That's where we were up until the last couple of years. Okay, Mac, I, I'd like to come back to this in another... In fourth, <laughs> we'll do a fourth episode. <laughs> we didn't set out to do this, but it's working out okay. But I want to explore what's happened in the last few years with the Abraham Accords, yep. the new kind of fostering of relationships between the UAE and uh, Saudi with Israel, which were kind of unthinkable 20 years ago. Yeah, they were. And where that will take Israel into the future and where we'll take the Palestinians as well. Okay, well, let's do that. So we now inadvertently will have a fourth series of the economics, the politics, the demography and the geopolitics of the region. We'll talk to you next week.